Tunisia is in trouble. For a decade, the nation that gave birth to the Arab Spring endured worsening economic hardship as its politicians waded through the weeds of a democratic transition without tackling many of the inciting factors, like unemployment, that underpinned the revolution that put them in office. Political infighting, corruption, and gridlock in the nation's parliament turned most Tunisians off of politics. So when an adjunct law professor and longtime pundit named Kaya Syed squeaked through to the second round of the presidential election in 2019 without a party backing him and with promises to clean up corruption, the Tunisian public took a chance on him. But in the three years since Syed took office, he has systematically dismantled the nascent democracy's institutions, sacking parliament, gutting the judiciary, and almost single-handedly rewriting the country's historic 2014 constitution. Both the referendum poll that approved Syed's new constitution and the first round of parliamentary elections that were held in December saw record low voter turnout, yet Syed still hailed both a success. His myopic focus on the country's political structure has left the already flagging economy in tatters. Billions of dollars in international loans are coming due, and a long-sought deal with the IMF has stalled over and over. Inflation is pushing 10%. Public employees, everyone from school janitors to university professors to postal clerks, are not receiving their wages on time, if at all. There are mass shortages of basic goods like flour, coffee, butter, and milk. And last year, a record number of Tunisians undertook the dangerous Mediterranean crossing to Italy to try to find stability and prosperity in Europe. Syed has many detractors and opponents, but no one person or group has managed to emerge as a viable alternative to the ascendant autocrat. The country's political parties are divided, and so is its population. And there is no political force more divisive in Tunisia than the Islamist Anahda, or Renaissance Party, which spent decades in exile under former rulers Habib Bourguiba and Zinal Abedin Ben Ali before re-emerging after the revolution to hold the majority of seats in parliament. Political Islam has been a contentious issue in the post-Arab Spring era in countries from Morocco and Egypt to Turkey and Tunisia. Anahda's relative success at the ballot box and in coalition building is marred by its reputation as an unreliable political partner and a deep distrust of and distaste for the co-mingling of religion and government from the country's devout secularist left. As various opposition factions try to create a path to wrest power away from Said, Anahda has become a pain point. I'm Erin Brown from New Lines Magazine. This is The Lead. Today, I'm joined by Monica Marks, Assistant Professor of Middle East Politics at New York University Abu Dhabi, who's been studying and writing on Tunisian politics for over a decade, to talk about how the Islamist movement in Tunisia has shaped its past and whether the next chapter in Tunisia's story can happen without it. Monica, welcome. We're so glad to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. So, Monica, I wanted to start out by asking, is this the right time to be talking about Anahta? As I explained in my intro, it's a rough time in Tunisia. There's shortages of basic goods. We've got this aspiring dictator in Carthage Palace. And I think to many, Anahata seemed like a specter of the past. So why should we be thinking and talking about Anahata now? I think that's a fundamental question. Um, you're right that Anahata's role and all of its controversial aspects do not constitute first order or even 
I'd say, ninth or 10th or 11th order questions at the moment. Tunisia is in a deep moment of crisis. Um, there was a presidential self-coup, as you mentioned, in July of 2021. Um, and most Tunisians are struggling to find basic goods on supermarket shelves like coffee or butter or milk. Um, but I think it's important to have, um, have this discussion, in part because Syed justified his coup and many of his supporters justified supporting it because they were afraid of Ennahda or, or they claimed that Ennahda was primarily or even single-handedly responsible for um, the, the country's failures to make good on its revolutionary promises of 2011, which became revolutionary dreams deferred, the goal of cleaning up corruption, the goal of reforming the abusive police state, the goal of diminishing regional inequalities, the goal of making um, democracy work, deliver real tangible economic goods for, for everyday Tunisians. A lot of people, including Kayas himself, pinned the blame for those failures primarily on Anatha. And, and even argued that Tunisia's democratic uh, transition had been hijacked, not just by a so-called Islamist party, but by a party that they claimed had even facilitated um, jihadist terrorists going to Syria and Iraq, or, or even facilitated jihadists um, gaining ground in Tunisia itself, which, which um, rocked the country especially from 2012 to 2015, when there were a number of high-profile political assassinations and jihadist terrorist attacks. So you'll still hear many Tunisians, especially those on the left, um, claiming that Anatha was responsible or, or bore a large measure of responsibility for those uh, attacks. So, you know, I think if we're going to really understand Syed's self-coup in 2021, what led to it, and whether or not Tunisia can exit from it and return to some sort of democratic path, we have to grapple with the, the so-called Nafta problem um, and, and really parse out how much of this is real, how much of it is imagined. Can or should Nafta be part of building a, a resurrected attempt at Tunisian democracy? And can Tunisia be anything more than an ineffective dictatorship without its inclusion politically? That, so that's a good question. I guess I'm wondering, how much is Anahta to blame for where the country ended up? One of the things I often reflect on is that while they seem very dedicated to the idea of democracy, mm. their political platform was pretty thin. They did a lot of going along with IMF proposals that are now coming back to haunt the country. And, you know... We hear a lot from the regular population that they're corrupt or that they were thieves that stole money out of Tunisia's coffers. What do you make of that? So Anatha, of all Tunisia's political parties, has long represented the single party that can mobilize a real support base. It's not just a man and a collection of devotees or, or cliquish friends. It's an actual party with with actual internal democracy, although that has been challenged more in, in recent years, as we can, we can discuss later. Um, and because of that mobilizational capacity, but also because, as you mentioned, Anafta has been part of almost every government 
since uh, Tunisia's 2011 revolution, it gets a lot of blame. But there's there's another reason at play here, too, that I think in order to be fair, we have to take on board, which is the fact that Anatha, much more than any other political player in Tunisian politics, was bastardized and really demonized for decades under Tunisia's pre-2011 dictators, Bourguiba and Ben Ali, as representing um, fundamentalists, fanatics, and even terrorists who threatened to destabilize the state. And those portrayals were born of Bourguiba and Ben Ali's fear of the political threat, of the competition that Anatha represented, more than of um, any evidence that Anatha was was extremist or violent, um, or even terribly Islamist. You know, we can debate the extent to which Anatha is even represents an Islamist party now or in the past, and and also the extent to which self-proclaimed anti-Islamists in Tunisia including Bourguiba and Ben Ali, represent secularists in any Western sense of the term involving institutional separation between religion and state. I think those two terms, Islamism and secularism, often confuse more than they clarify. But armed with that contextual background, we now need to, to, to deal with your question. Um, and I think the short answer to your question is they do shoulder some of the blame, um, but that it was probably folly to ever expect Anatha to be the party that could deliver the revolutionary reforms so many Tunisians desperately craved. I want to pause there and maybe maybe we can go back a little bit and talk about why that is. Because, you know, I think we know a little bit, you know, our listeners may know a little bit about Anatha, but they might not know sort of what Anatha endured under the Bourguiba and Ben Ali regimes that would maybe make them a little bit uh, trigger shy on being the, as I think you often say, the tip of the spear of, of the revolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like the phrase trigger shy. I think that's a good way to put it. Um, Anatha endured more repression than almost any political party I can think of in the Middle East or or North Africa's um, 20th century history. Um, it's right up there with the, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt under Nasser or, or now under Sisi. Um, what Anatha endured in the late years of, of Bourguiba and especially in the 1990s under Ben Ali was almost, you know, was, it was an, an all out existential attack. That's what it was. Anatha members survived by either going underground or escaping abroad. Um, many Anatha members, thousands, were tortured. Many men and women, real members and suspected members, including people who just happened to have a brother or a father active in the party, were raped. Many were forced to divorce their spouses by police officers. Um, Many, this was a very, very common experience that thousands and thousands of Anatha members suffered, were forced to register about five times a day at the local police station, which made it impossible to do anything from from study successfully for a degree to hold down a job. They were blacklisted from employment. Their own family members wouldn't talk to them. Um, If they had a scholarship to study at the Sorbonne in Paris uh, or in the U.S., 
they couldn't get a passport to leave the country. Um, so they were also subject to travel bans. Many thousands of lives were destroyed. So if if you're a listener who's familiar with, you know, the, the so-called Islamist AKP party in Turkey and and the abuses that it faced, like headscarved women not being able to go to university um, in the 1990s and earlier, or the abuses that uh, Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood members sometimes faced under Mubarak and, and his predecessor in, in Egypt. What Anatha faced in Tunisia is on a completely different order of magnitude. And quite shockingly, they, they don't talk about it a lot. It's, it's not like the Turkey situation where you hear um, all the time. Um, and rightly so, to some extent, about the abuses that, that you know, headscarved women faced when they couldn't go to university. A lot of Anatha members simply don't talk about it, especially things like um, the, the being blacklisted from employment and the sexual abuse and being forced to divorce spouses, things of that nature. But it was, it was deeply traumatic. And the argument that the Bourguiba and Ben Ali regimes made was that this was basically a, a terrorist movement that threatened to destabilize the country and send it back to the dark ages. The, the regimes really tried to erase any distinctions between Anatha's center-right, what Anatha likes to call Muslim democratness, what their detractors would call their Islamistness, um, and, and jihadist extremists and terrorists. And, and when the war on terror started, um, after the September 11th attacks in 2001, Ben Ali really, really capitalized on trying to frame Anatha in that terrorist narrative. And, and there are still lingering effects of that. So, you know, as, as an American, I sometimes think that imagining Anatha was going to be the tip of the revolutionary reformist spear, given all that history, is kind of like imagining that the Black Lives Matter movement would be the tip of police reform if they were to win the governorship, you know, of, of New York State or something. I'm not at all saying that these movements are the same. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to overplay that analogy at all. But what I am saying is that the analogy, the similarity, turns on victims being expected to be reformists. And Anatha was was deeply and traumatically victimized in ways that most most people, including most journalists, scholars, and diplomats who work on or in Tunisia, still don't fully recognize. Um, in part because Tunisia's transitional justice experiment was halted by Syed Self coup and also by internal disagreement within the Transitional Justice Commission itself, and because Anatha's party leadership in the view of a lot of members of the, the Nafta base, abandoned efforts for transitional justice and accountability. There, there were a lot of Anatha members who felt that the party leadership was really trying to go along to get along and make all sorts of compromises with the old regime when they actually hoped that it would demand more accountability, more acknowledgement of history, you didn't hear much talk about reparations from the base, at least not from the the hundreds and even thousands of Anatha members I've um, spoken with over the years informally and in hundreds informal interviews. But um, but you did you did hear a real mounting disappointment with the party leadership's willingness to 
it, it seemed to a lot of members, abandon police reform or uh, pass the 2017 Economic Reconciliation Act, which helped provide amnesty for, for corrupt members of the former regime. So one of the biggest cleavages um, I would argue the biggest cleavage um, that emerged within Anatha itself after the 2011 revolution was um, this, this tension between a base that felt really desperate for revolutionary reform and accountability for the old regime and a party leadership that was acutely aware of how fragile their positions were at the political table, given the weight of that history. And in part because of that, and also in part because of the lore of power, the lore of political normalization, the lore of actually being able to keep those seats at the table. Reasons of, of egotism and, and personal hunger, but also reasons um, that are very natural and to be expected when we study the comparative politics of political transitions in post-authoritarian states where you have um, a, a highly marginalized and ideologically suspect movement like this, um, you know, the leadership really did make a lot of compromises. So many compromises, in fact, that you, you can't even begin to think of an Islamist movement or so-called Islamist party in the region that compares in terms of the number, the sheer number of concessions that they made. Anatha made so many concessions um, during the during Tunisia's decade of, of attempt to democratic transition, that a lot of people really wondered in what sense is this party Islamist and in what sense is this party revolutionary? Maybe this is just a kind of vanilla kind of center-right conservative party that that doesn't seem to have a, a clear reformist, let alone radical program on any level. Yeah, you know, I think that's something that's really interesting, too. There's this concept that you talk about sometimes in your work, um, the the Anahta syndrome, that might be mm. sort of akin to a, a never Trump political stance in, in the US. These folks who don't care who is in power as long as it's not Anahta. And, you know, some of it, um, I think, comes from this, this fear, basic fear of Islamist participation, right? And, and the central question of is Anahta governing more about religious extremism or is it more about mm. power? I hear all the time in my reporting that if Anahta were solely in power, everyone would be wearing a headscarf. You know, we'd all be living Sharia law, even though they've been in governing coalitions since the beginning. But because they've been in coalition, we've never actually seen what Anahta would do if it were solely in power. And so I'm curious what you make of this idea that Anahta's compromising has actually just watered down its Islamism over time, or if it actually has a, a completely different agenda than most Islamist parties? I'm so happy you asked that question, because it's such a real question that any journalist or researcher worth their salt lives on almost a daily basis if they're working in Tunisia. You know, in politics, perception is reality, and you have to meet people where they are and, and grapple with that. Um, there are very smart reasons to criticize Natha, you know, and I and I mentioned some of them. And in fact, many, many members of Anatha fell away from its party uh, base 
fell away uh, from the polls voting for it, in part because of those criticisms. Um, but there's another set of reasons that you hear all the time on the street that you mentioned, um, that even though they're not evidence-based and, and you can't find a solid scholar of Anatha who has documented evidence for, for any of these claims, evidence for the claim that Anatha would impose headscarf on, on everybody, <laughs> evidence for the claim that um, Anatha consciously facilitated jihadists going to Syria and Iraq in 2012 and 2013, et cetera, et cetera, they're still very real on the streets. Um, now, you mentioned the phrase Anatha syndrome, and I can't take, take credit for that phrase. It actually comes from um, a famous leftist leader, communist leader in Tunisia, uh, and a dear friend named Hamil Hamami. Um, and you'll find it mentioned in an interview I did with him, published in Jadalia in August of 2021, just a few weeks after Caius's self-coup. And, and I highly recommend listeners to go read it. It was an excellent interview. Um, but, you know, Hamel Hamami, despite himself being <laughs> victim of this a little bit sometimes, not, work, not being willing to work with Anatha in a cross-ideological uh, anti-dictatorship opposition coalition, Hamel Hamami is very cognizant of this phenomenon. And he was saying, you know, the left in Tunisia, broadly speaking, hasn't been nearly vocal enough in calling this coup what it is. Now, since August 2021, when I did that interview, most every political party in Tunisia and most civil society organizations, including those on the left, have recognized um, the coup as, as a coup and are calling for Syed's uh, dictatorship to fall and for an alternative, a democratic alternative to form. But in August 2021, when we did that interview, that wasn't the case. And Hamel Hamami was saying that leftist reticence um, to call Caius's coup what it was and their willingness to even cheerlead for it, to go out on the street and cheer. You know, the UGTT, Tunisia's powerful trade union, was a, was a very important initial cheerleader of Caius's coup. And, and they're the most important organization on the left. Hama was saying, you know, I think the main reason why that happened was so-called Anatha syndrome, almost this um, pathological allergic reaction, a kind of paranoia against anything involving Anatha, um, based in, grounded in decades of fear and propaganda, etc., more than in any evidence we have from their actual decade in power. You know, we're in 2023 right now. We're not in 2010. We have um, 12 years now to work with, to look at. Ten, ten of those years, Anatha was actually part of almost every single government. So the question, what would Anatha do if they had a seat at the political table, is not, um, you know, it's not an abstract question. They actually won a plurality of votes, 43% of votes in Tunisia's first post-revolutionary elections in 2011. And they went into a coalition government with two secularly oriented parties. Now, opponents could, could argue, well, listen, if they won 55% of votes, maybe they would have eaten the whole pie like AKP did it, did it in Turkey. And close observers of so-called Islamist politics point at Erdogan in Turkey, the president of Turkey, and rightly so, as being the main um, specter of, of horror, the main warning 
um, when it comes to trusting any democratic commitments that Islamist parties make. Um, Erdogan famously said before he had uh, amassed a, a critical mass of power, he famously said that democracy was like a train. You can get off of it <laughs> at the right stop. Um, and a lot of people remember that and say, well, listen, there's no reason to think Anatha wouldn't do the same thing. Now, I'm a political scientist. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> so I can't actually predict the future with you and tell you, you know, what would Anatha do if they won 99% of votes or even 60% of votes. But what I can do as a political scientist who's been studying this party deeply based on hundreds of, of in-depth interviews with its members and many hundreds more interviews with its detractors over the past 12 years in Tunisia, I can tell you what the historical record looks like. And often history is the best predictor of, of future action. Um, so we know that Anatha has a very long history of going into coalition with ideologically opposed parties that Islamist cousin movements, cousin-like movements, like the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood um, or the Jordanian Muslim Brotherhood or Morocco's PJD, etc., would gasp at the thought of going to, into coalition with these actors. I'll give you one excellent example of this. Anatha's first press conference was in 1981. Um, and in that press conference, they verbally committed to working alongside any political party that opposed Bourguiba's dictatorship, even the Tunisian Communist Party. And they mentioned them by name. Now, cousin-like Islamist parties in the region were aghast. They, they looked at Anatha and they said, you would work with godless communists? Um, Anatha was, was always um, a kind of weird animal in the sphere, the, the, you know, on the broader menu of Islamist parties region-wide. They really are such a different animal. And I think that's something important that we might want to stop and, and explore a little bit more. So can you talk us through what some of the differences are between Anahta and other major Islamist parties that our listeners may have heard of, like the AKP in Turkey or the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt? There are a couple of really important differences historically inside Anahta versus other cousin-like Islamist parties in the region that I think listeners should be aware of. One key difference is that Anatha was born as a party, not really as a social movement. Almost from its inception in the late 1970s, Anatha sought to become a Hizb, a political party. Now, most Islamist movements in the region are first and foremost harakat, movements. Um, the best example is the kind of mothership party, uh, the, the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, which was formed in 1928, many decades before Anatha was formed. And Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood formed as a kind of parallel state that was going to do everything. Its motto was Al-Islam huwa al-hal. Islam is the solution. And they built everything from, from schools to hospitals to charities and they also thought, well, maybe someday we'll have a political party, but they didn't create one until the 2011 revolution happened in Egypt. So Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood existed for 81 years, doing all this kind of parallel state charity, education, hospital stuff before they formed a political party. That's so, so different from Anatha, which never really had this confusion about its identity. I think that's important because it shows that Anatha 
saw itself as a party that wanted to compete in a democratic space um, with ideologically opposed actors. It didn't see itself as um, an all-encompassing parallel octopus state in waiting. Um, I think another important difference um, historically between enough and other parties, uh, so-called Islamist parties, is that it never had a separate qism or division for women. This is crucial, and almost nobody talks about it. Almost nobody is aware of this. But unlike Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, which from its founding in 1928 has always had gender segregation inside it, it has a separate division for women and for men. Um, and Nathan never had that. Now, that's not to say that Anahta was some kind of progressive bastion um, of, of feminist champions. Um, Anahta has actually evolved quite considerably on, on a few different um, issues regarding women's rights in Tunisia, most notably um, its stance on the 1956 Personal Status Code, uh, the famous legislation that Habib Bourguiba uh, forced through that gave Tunisian women many more rights than their peers elsewhere in the Arab world. It gave Tunisian women the right to initiate a divorce. It gave Tunisian women the right not to be subject to polygamous marriages because it made polygamy illegal. <laughs> Tunisia is one of the only countries in the Arab world where men can only have one wife by law. And Nafa, historically, when it was founding, had a very ambiguous position on, on the 1956 Personal Status Code that they've since moved away from in subsequent decades um, and, and are now very vocally in, in favor of it. Um, so, you know, I don't want to confuse listeners by, by trying to make it seem like they're some kind of um, extremely progressive or feminist party. They're, they're a center-right conservative party um, when it comes to most culture related issues, like, for example, inheritance law in Tunisia. Um, Tunisia's inheritance law is a so-called Sharia-based law in which women typically inherit about half of what men inherit unless their fathers decree it otherwise in a will. And Anatha, like about 70% of the, the Tunisian public, according to the best polling data we have, um, wants that to stay as it is, basically. Um, but then again, so do most other Tunisian political parties. I, I think one really important thing we have to keep in mind when evaluating how Islamist Anatha is, is the sticky, messy reality that a lot of so-called anti-Islamist parties and politicians in Tunisia have adopted positions equally, if not more conservative than Anatha's on key cultural issues. I wanted to ask a little bit about um, Syed's relationship to Anatha because Kai Syed is, for all of his his sort of leftist darling, <laughs> you know, in the press, I think he's he's often depicted as somebody who would go to cafes and talk to the students. Um, for all of that, he's actually quite conservative, mm -hmm. and in the twenty nineteen election, Anatha actually pulled support from their own candidate, one of the founding members of the party, actually, to back Saeed rather last minute. Yeah. One of the great ironies of how Saeed's coup has played out and how the opposition to it has played out is that the same people who were cheering most loudly for Saeed's coup when it happened in July 2021 typically didn't vote for Saeed in 2019. <laughs> Why? 
because Syed was perceived as Anatha's choice candidate in 2019. And after two years, the table shifted and it became clear that the biggest loser from Syed's coup, um, at least the biggest obvious loser in the short term, I would argue that all, pretty much all Tunisians have been losers in the longer term, um, and are increasingly recognizing that. But but the clearest loser in July 2021 was Anatha. So for people who were um, opposed to, to Anatha, um, many saw Syed ironically as their champion, even though Syed on the campaign trail in 2019 evinced considerably more conservative positions on cultural issues than Anatha. Now, no one ever called Syed Islamist, ironically, and, and this will... You'll, you'll see that this is, has often been the case in Tunisian politics, where politicians, including some who say that they're anti-Islamist, will adopt more conservative positions than enough on cultural issues, but they won't be called Islamist. And, and I think that's you know just a, a fascinating topic to explore. Um, Bejikaida Sebsi, um, the, the famous um, so-called secular, vehemently anti-Islamist, vehemently anti-Nafta president, um, who died in 2019. He was Tunisia's second um, post-revolutionary president um, who won in, in a landslide vote supported by many, many people who um, were, were deeply afraid of Anatha's, what they felt to be Anatha's deeply conservative vision for the country. Um, Bejikai Adesebsi himself adopted um, a position on homosexuality that clearly criminalized it. He did not want to decriminalize homosexuality, and, and he said so very clearly. Whereas, interestingly, um, Rashid Ghanoushi, the president of Anatha, said basically, don't ask, don't tell. He wanted to decriminalize it, but keep, keep it um, something private that people did in their own homes and didn't really flaunt. Now, Ghanoushi's position was certainly not liberal, certainly not progressive, according you know, to, 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 to Western views about this. Um, and it was not a position that I would argue upholds the full human rights and liberties of LGBTQ people, but he did want to decriminalize it, which would have been a step forward for Tunisia. Um, now, Syed, on a whole range of issues, from inheritance law to homosexuality and many other things, was was far more conservative than a Sebsi or a Nafa. So, you know, I think it's really important to not think we understand actors in Tunisian politics and in broader MENA region, Middle East and North Africa politics, just because of labels. I think often we say, oh, that person's a secularist or that group is an Islamist group. So, okay, the secularists are sort of my tribe's people and I kind of know what they think and the Islamists aren't. But we have to really go issue by issue and try to figure it out because these terms, secularism and Islamism, just so often confuse more than they clarify. Yeah, absolutely. So before we go, I want to ask you about the crossroads that we're at right now. Um, Said has lost his base of support, the landslide victory that he had in 2019, and even the sort of mass amount of support that came just after July 25th, 2021, has managed to evaporate. And yet, we have not seen anyone emerge to 
challenge him or or take his place. And indeed, actually, I think a lot of the the, the people who could potentially rival Saeed uh, as a future leader in Tunisia have gotten entangled in you know in politics with Anahta, and it's become a, a political problem for them. So I'm really curious, uh, what do you see as the way out? Is there a future for Tunisia with Anahta? Is there a future for Tunisia without Anahta? Hmm. Well, you know, I think as was the case under Ben Ali and Bourguiba before him, any meaningful conversation about exiting dictatorship relies on building cross-ideological opposition coalitions. There is strength in unity. And I I don't think we're ever going to reach or we should even ask opposition actors to reach such a unified point where they're actually agreeing for a vision for the country. But when I say unity, I mean simply agreeing that Syed needs to go and what are the first one or two or three things that need to happen next. Um, Should should, uh, a commission, kind of like the Ben Ashur Commission that was appointed in 2011, kind of independent technocrats, come back to steer Tunisia towards new elections that are free and fair? Should the 2014 constitution be re-invoked, which was a democratically representative constitution, the only one in Tunisia's history, automatically or not? You know, just some basic points need to be agreed upon, but there does need to be a cross-ideological opposition coalition. Now, um, Anatha, for all the reasons that we've discussed, has been perceived as so toxic that it's almost as if they have a reverse Midas touch, where where everything they touch turns not to gold, but to the other stuff, (laughs) the, the yucky stuff. And nobody wants to work with them. For, for reasons evidence-based and not evidence-based. Um, I think one of the, the strongest reasons why a lot of actors don't want to work with them is because they're perceived by many Tunisians as being a party of the past that was just so deeply connected to the post-2011 government's failures to deliver that a lot of people don't have confidence in it. I think that's very understandable. But the fact remains that Anatha is the only political party that can mobilize big numbers on the streets. And we saw that manifested literally a few days ago on January 14th. Um, Tunisia had what could have been, I think, had there not been so many police barriers and police stopping trains and and buses and stuff. I think it could have been... um, almost as large as the January 14th, 2011 protest that brought down Ben Ali. There were a lot of protesters on the street, um, almost 10,000 by, by the best calculations. And the vast, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say the vast majority, but the, the largest number by far were Anatha supporters. And you could tell not only because of, of the chants that they raised, but also because of the signs that they held. Many were holding signs uh, calling on the government to free Ali Larayad, who's probably the number three top member of Anatha and a beloved old leader who was tortured in the basement of the Ministry of Interior in solitary confinement for about 16 years and has been rearrested, re-imprisoned on, you know, completely specious charges with no no clear evidence um, by Syed's regime. Um, so I think by by directly attacking people like Larayed, um, other leaders too, like Bahiri since his coup, 
Um, and by instantiating these broad, fuzzy travel bans, especially against Anatha members and democratically elected members of the former parliament, Kaya Syed has ironically actually stirred up a lot of support for Anatha. A lot of Anatha members who felt disillusioned for some of the reasons that I mentioned, who felt like their party wasn't really delivering, that their party abandoned revolutionary principles, etc., um, are coming back into the fold now because Anatha does best in many ways when it's the underdog under pressure, when it's being victimized. They know how to play that game and still survive and still mobilize. These people aren't dead yet. <laughs> they're, they're not millennials or Gen Zers typically. Um, although there are a lot of, of a, lot, a lot of millennials who remember very well, people in their 30s remember very well when their parents were in prison, when their father was tortured, when their mother was forced to divorce their father, things like that. Um, but the older generations especially have a very strong muscle memory of what to do when the party is under direct attack. And, you know, this, this is a message that I just so many times I wish that opponents of, of so-called the so-called Ikhwan, the so-called Muslim Brotherhood around the region would really take this political lesson to heart. If you want to defeat these parties and these programs, let them get elected democratically and let them fall on their own swords. You know, Anatha was doing a pretty excellent job of losing supporters um, in the democratic game of politics. They weren't getting a whole lot of things done, even for their, their members. Um, that people could clearly point to. Um, and their vote share was decreasing steadily with each and every election over time. But now, since Kaiasai Ka made his coup, you're seeing Anatha's mobilizational capacity amping back up again. Um, so do I think that there's a future for democratic politics in Tunisia without Anatha? Absolutely not, especially if, if Kaiasai keeps attacking them. Um, does the movement still have power? It absolutely does. Anatha and the trade union, UGTT, are the two most mobilizationally capable political entities in the country. Um, and, and they're not going to disappear. Tunisia has been down the road of trying to make them disappear in the 1990s. Ben Ali did almost everything he could to obliterate them. But they came back. Um, so I think the hard reality... Um, is is that people have to talk, right? <laughs> and and I think increasingly Tunisia's opposition opposition is getting that memo. You hear talk about UGTT talking, going into informal dialogues with some actors, whether or not UGTT, the trade union, will actually agree to to form some kind of an oppositional front with Jebet Khlas, the, the Salvation Front of which Anatha is a member, is one of the biggest questions. Um, today that will determine whether or not Kayasaya's regime will survive or consolidate. Um, but these are, these are all really crucial issues to watch. And there's no way to understand where we are now or where we're going in Tunisia without understanding where Anatha is and has been. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much, Monica. This has been The Lead, a New Lines Magazine podcast. You can read all of our Tunisia coverage on our website at newlinesmag.com, and you can follow Monica on Twitter at Monica L. Marks. I've been your host, Erin Brown. Today's show was produced by Joshua Martin and myself. For more like this, we hope you'll like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.